Hello, I'm Alex Rutkeen. I'm a barrister at Third Man Essex Chambers specialising in mental capacity law. And I'm really pleased to be joined in the shed today, um, at my morning, her evening, by Xineng Then, um, joining us from Australia. So anyone who's heard one of these uh, talks or one of these conversations before will know I don't like introducing the person. I really like them to introduce themselves. So Xineng, over to you. Introduce yourself to us, please. Thanks very much. And um, thanks for the opportunity to come and talk with you today. Um, so yes, my name's Xining. I'm a professor at the Australian Centre for Health Law Research here based in uh, Queensland, Brisbane. Um, I'm a socio-legal researcher, I guess, and one of the main areas that I've been focusing on over the better, most of a part of a decade has been around decision-making, namely um, supported decision-making, um, substitute decision-making, legal frameworks, and sort of, I guess, legal and regulatory reform in that area. Um, so I've done most of that work with a, sort of the same set of collaborators here based in Australia, um, some of which you may know, Terry Carney and Christine Bigby from the Living with Disability Research Centre down at La Trobe. Um, and yeah, we've done a, a body of work over the past sort of eight to 10 years or so. A lot of which I am going to or link. I'm going to put links to it at the bottom of the, the page for this for this conversation, because they're such important and such interesting uh, pieces of work. And the one I really wanted, um, as it was, you to join me in the shed to discuss is the most recent report um, on supported decision making, which well, can sort of give me the background, the context to it. Um, and, and then we can sort of dive into it in a little bit more detail, just for people who are unfamiliar with why this report's being published. Of course. Um, so this report was commissioned by the Disability Royal Commission. So that's a sort of um, independent body that's been um, tasked with looking at the, well, I'll give you the full name, that will be the scope of it. So the, the Royal Commission into Violence, Abuse, Neglect and Exploitation of People with Disability. So they're given terms of reference by the government. They're given a set period of time in which they can work. Um, they have power to have public hearings, take submissions, but they also um, commission research to inform their work. So that's an ongoing um, uh, body at the moment. They're due to report with their final recommendations to government later on this year. Um, but they really um, wanted to have specific uh, research done around supported decision making and what that might mean in the context of their work. So we were approached to, to do that. And I guess they had some specific questions that they wanted us to, to tackle in, in developing our report, namely kind of, you know, how what is supported decision making? How is it understood? Um, what does it mean in the context of different um, cognitive disabilities? Um, what's the literature saying around it? Um, what's best practice? Um, is there, you know, evidence of good practice and pilots have been evaluated both domestically and internationally? So those are the types of things that they were kind of interested in. Um, but they tasked us with creating a supported decision-making framework, I guess, um, that could be applicable very broadly. Um, so across different sectors in Australia, but also applicable to all of the different cognitive disabilities. So it was an ambitious sort of scope that they had for us. <laughs> it, well, which then results in a, in a, I think I described it in my blog post as a doorstop of report, but that's, that's a compliment because it's so thorough and so comprehensive. And actually one thing I really want to get into in a minute, one of the things I think is most interesting is it recognises that different types of impairments actually require different approaches as opposed to this is just supported decision making go ahead and do it and I think I, I really want to trick into that because I think that's one that it's really it's really core strength at least to me but can we just as it were start at the beginning 
with, you know, so, you know, what is supported? I mean, what, well, why do people talk about supported decision-making? I mean, given the CRPD doesn't actually talk about supported decision-making at all, it talks about the support for the exercise of legal capacity. And then, so why do people talk about it? And then sort of, how did you go about contextualizing and giving the answer to that question that the, the Royal, you know, Disability Royal Commission asks you? Uh, I mean, it, it seems to me that support decision-making has become this kind of umbrella term, sort of broadly speaking, you know, people kind of use it as a term to describe some aspects of Article 12, um, use it as a, a term to describe practices consistent with the CRPD. Um, but I think there is uh, a vagueness around how people bandy around this term, and it does get bandied around a lot, um, and it has done in, in Australia too. Um, so yeah, we, we're a sort of interdisciplinary group of, of researchers. We come from different disciplinary backgrounds and, and even and that to us, you know, that brought to light the fact that we have different perceptions mm -hmm. of what supported decision-making means. Um, so it was one of the foundation questions that we kind of approached. Um, and that's where we had an empirical component to the research. So there was over 70 interviews and focus groups with people with disabilities, but also advocates, people who work in the sector, stakeholders, that type of thing. And one thing that we came out clearly from that was that people had differing views of what supported decision making actually was. Um, and and so I think it it's it was difficult to find any piece of work prior to this that really pinned down that that there was these different understandings. And obviously, if we have a we don't have a common conception of what it is, then it's actually quite difficult to talk about how it might be useful or implemented yeah. either in law or policy. Um, but what our research really found was that there were sort of two main ways in which people understood it. Um, the first way was really as in opposition to substitute decision making. So you could either have, you know, it was a kind of binary model. You either had supported decision making or substitute decision making. And, you know, capacity is probably the line where you flip between one or the other. Um, and, and so that, and I think that's a sort of fairly common understanding of the term, but um, it became very clear to us that if that is the term that, if, I mean, if that's our understanding of support decision-making, we're actually leaving out a whole lot of people who have cognitive impairment because they're never going to be able to sort of satisfy falling in to, to, to the bucket that allows us yeah. to do supported decision-making. So you're excluding people with severe and profound cognitive disabilities, um, which is a major critique of, of, of that approach. Um, the other way that we found that people were talking about it was more recognizing that decision-making is a bit of a continuum and there's no necessarily bright line between when someone provides support and when they may make a substitute decision. Um, and that indeed you can move between the two of them, particularly if you're in an informal role. Um, and that the principles that come from the UNCRPD can be applicable to, um, you know, some types of substitute decisions as well. So we we saw that the hallmark of supported decision making is really having the person's will and preference at the centre of the decision making, whether that's one that they've a person does with assistance or whether that's a, a substitute decision at the end of the day. So we've called that the principled approach to sub supported decision-making. Um, and that's kind of one that's more inclusive of everyone who has um, cognitive disability, regardless of how severe or or not their their um, disability is. Yeah, um, I think that's really important, isn't it? The, the point that if you take the on its face purist line, um, you actually end up ironically ex excluding 
almost the very people that CRPD is most designed to say, give these individuals a voice because they're the people who are most obviously and most often just ignored or yeah. know, spoken over. So yeah, no, that's really, it is. It's really, I, I, those principles, I think, as you say, are really important in terms of giving that through line for how to think about it. Yeah. yeah. And I think it does then allow us to kind of also distinguish a bit between um, some substitute decision-making that may be more consistent with the ideals of the UNCRPD and those that we think are not, you know, appropriate. So the very paternalistic best interest driven substitute decision-making probably wouldn't fall within the framework of a principled approach to supported decision-making. Um, but it's also pragmatic in that it recognizes that sometimes a substitute decision will need to be made, um, yeah. which I think is, is, you know, realistic. Well, it is. And it also slightly means you don't get into this slightly kind of double speak about 100% supported decision making where you're trying to say, no, it's not really a substitute decision. And pe most people would think the reality is someone else is stepping in here. They're doing it in the right way and they're trying to think about it in the right way. But the reality is, is, is someone stepping in. And that's why one of the things I really like about that principled approach you've got, because it gives you the a framework, a moral compass with with which to say that's the right direction or that's the wrong direction. That kind of judgment call you can you can make. Yeah. But, so I, the, the, as I said, I wanted to come back to this idea of you know trying to th the, the point you made about well what you've got the principles and you've got the broad idea, but how it tracks out sort of might be different in different situations. You know, in different sort of categories. Now that's the right word I'm not sure it is but if you if you could just sort of amplify that a bit more just to give people a sense of you know where what they could be looking for in the tools because one of the things I really want people to do is read your report and go away and use the tools in their own practices you know wherever they are yeah so I guess one of the things that became really clear when we started delving into the literature was the sort of uneven nature of the evidence in relation to support decision-making practice um and the both in terms of the different uh, dis uh, cognitive disabilities, but also across sectors. So that was something that came out really strongly when we looked into it. Um, but of course, across the, the the four main groups, if you want to call them that, across the cognitive disabilities, you know, dementia, acquired brain injury, mental health um, or psychosocial issues, and then intellectual disability. Um, obviously, those groups, um, you know, the sort of hallmarks of some of the features of those conditions differ in the you know intellectual disability predominantly stable dementia, um, you're looking at a steady decline, that type of thing. Um, but they're also um, couched within usually different settings. So um, intellectual disability, you know, often being supported accommodation, um, disability services type um, sit within that sector. You know, people with dementia in Australia, there's a high proportion of uh, residents and residential aged care facilities who have a diagnosis of dementia. So you're talking about a totally different setting that's also funded totally differently because it's federal funding rather than um, state-based. Um, so uh, yeah, those those differences, I guess, mean that I think there has we recognize there has to be different approaches and different innovations for those different groups. So you can't just, I think, roll out one single model that's going to work across all those groups. And I think that's quite clear in that there may be common principles and common elements that can be um, taken across those groups, but everything will be will need to be 
I guess, tailored for, for the particular individuals and their circumstances. Um, I mean, one of the things that came out from our research as well is that the mental health space is really sort of quite siloed in terms of the research and, and understanding of supported decision making, um, probably because it has its own separate legal framework, which is quite unique as well. Um, but there was evidence of these kind of silos of, of understanding and knowledge. Um, and I think there is more of a need to kind of look at things more holistically at a, a sort of broader level, but also then draw upon those commonalities perhaps that we, we can see. So the, the evidence that we had um, mainly related to intellectual disability um, and um, a bit about acquired brain injury and then some in relation to dementia and in the context of Australia. And there are some commonalities there in terms of what works in terms of a good support relationship and so some of those things you know like a trusting relationship knowing the person well you can see that those types of elements are probably going to work across all types of support relationships regardless of your the condition of the person who's being supported um, and there are probably some principles that you can embed in terms of good support practice yeah um you know allowing uh, sort of embedding reflective um practices in the supporter to sort of self-check you know that type of thing um but certainly we recognize that the research just isn't advanced enough in all of the different ways in which we want it to be across those four disability groups that we can confidently say this is the model that's going to work so um i think we we do recognize that there is more research that needs to be done in that area we do have some models already in existence that can be, I think, provide a bit of a foundation. Um, like in Australia, we've got the Latrobe model of supported decision-making. Um, and there's also one that has been developed in relation to dementia by the Cognitive Decline Partnership Centre. Um, but they need, they need to be built upon, I think. Yeah. No, and I, and I think there's something very important there in terms of the recognition of the limits of what we know at the moment in terms of, thinking well as we roll things forward as we try and improve it's not just well here's one model which works in one zone let well in that case it must work here i mean i think there's a sort of degree of humility required in terms of how one kind of proceeds uh, and i think it's it's you know we've probably got to look at it in the medium to long term you know view if you're kind of looking at trying to embed supported decision making. I suppose we thought we, we've said quite clearly in the report that supported decision making can't stand alone. Like it's it needs to be embedded across systems for it to make a difference in people's lives. And that's just going to take time because we saw great variation um, based on the literature in terms of how people, how different sectors have embraced or understood supported decision making. Um, so we see, you know, in the disability sector, it's quite a well-known concept and it's being implemented into policies and things but if you look across it maybe you know healthcare sector um it's a bit of an unknown concept to most clinicians um if you try and move into the banking sector then they've got you know no idea so there's, there's a real patchwork sort of quilt of, of people's understanding of what that means even though for it to work fully i think there needs to be a broad understanding of of, the, of how it should work in practice yeah, I mean, the banking sector raises all sorts of other very interesting ideas about, I mean, and one of the things I think was really important, you were talking about the context, so you've got different types of funding, but also you've just got different types of legality or legal considerations going around, because, you know, 
banking, you know, know your client? Is it actually the person's own decision? You know, there's, you know, all of those things, which at some level feel very different to, you know, enabling someone to be able to make decisions about who they see, what they do, you know, and there's, there, I think some of those, those aspects where it starts getting into kind of entering into contracts or entering into those sort of things are, it doesn't mean that the principles aren't really relevant. They just kind of track out against some contexts which require quite a lot more thought in some way. Yeah, yeah. I, I think um, the, the, the report does uh, go with a sort of broad, high-level, relatively yeah. high-level approach, and we haven't sort of drilled down too much into those types of specifics. But certainly if we are going to get serious about it, we will have to, won't we? Um, which, uh, But I think a major part of change is probably um, trying to increase um, different professionals' understanding of what the term actually is. You know, yeah, and whether we do that, yeah, and I think, um, you know, the more that we can embed it in things like, uh, you know, undergraduate or postgraduate training and then, you know, CPD, it, it, that's that's where we're probably going to get the change and stuff. Um, but the other thing, I guess, that um, our, because our report did build upon the principles from the ALRC 2014 report, um, but one of the things that we recognised was um, the importance of distributional equity in terms of moving forward. So, you know, it's like fairly well established, I think, that some of the people who benefit most from supported decision making currently are those that have really strong social networks. So mm -hmm. have, you know, naturally occurring social networks in their life. Um, and it means that those that are socially isolated really um, don't get any of the benefits of supported decision making. So I guess in, in recognizing that we, we thought that distributional equity should be a principle that does guide sort of um, the holistic development of of embedding supported decision making, whether it's schemes or policies, um, just so those people don't get left behind. I think. Yeah, that's a hugely, hugely important point because, especially the more one relies on informal support or inform, you know, recognition of someone who's already providing informal support, that's great if people have got a network and completely hopeless if you've got someone who, you know, as you say, is falling through the falling through the gaps. Yeah. yeah. And I think that then also leads, uh, that kind of ties into that issue of, of a need for a broader understanding, because those people may, you know, their interactions may be with, you know, the healthcare system, and then the only chance they get to have be supported is, if, is through meeting those clinicians or meeting social workers, whatever. So I think that does tie into that aspect of it. Yeah, no, completely. I mean, I remember working with Camilla Kong and, and her ideas of, you know, everybody has circles of support around them or circles which can enable or disable. And whenever I'm delivering training to social workers or healthcare professionals, I point out you could well be part of that circle of support or, you know, you yourself could be enabling or you yourself be disabling. And it's always interesting when you see the look in their eye because they're thinking, oh, I hadn't really thought of that. I was thinking of support being, you know, the family member or the friend. It's actually, no, I'm part of that. And I think that I agree. It's really important if you've got the only, the person's predominant interactions are with professionals, it's actually the professionals have to be kind of seen. And as you say, then that goes back to the, how do you get the mindset there, which is, you know, how do you embed it from, you know, the very get-go in terms of what people are doing, in terms of their training, in terms of things like that. I would love to keep talking to you because there's, it's such a rich report. There's so much in it. We, I do try and keep these roughly to 20 minutes, but I, one question I just really did want to ask you was kind of closing question, you know, so in everything you did, this huge piece of work, was there one thing which really kind of surprised you when you, when you were working through it? 
I wouldn't say it was a surprise. It was more sort of confirming some some suspicions that we had, um, but was really the the un the the unequal way in which supported decision making is currently understood across sectors was just this. It was just so clear that um, there is this great divide between some sectors being well ahead and understanding and trying to implement, um, and then some sectors just lagging far behind. And I think that recognizing that is um is going to be a huge part of of you know changing culture and things but um i hadn't quite realized the extent to which that that was the case um and i guess so that was a, that was a bit of a surprise but um yeah it, i guess it confirmed some of our suspicions about it anything else but yes yeah well yeah, I mean, but if, as it's, if it's then laid out incredibly clearly then it's you know then we know what the problem is and then you can start thinking about tools of how to address the problem so yeah, yeah. so Xining, thank you so much as i said i'm going to put the link to the to the report on this i'm also really want to put a link to the the, the trade supported decision making framework you mentioned briefly because that's just such an important practical tool which i know is applicable in in situations other than just australia and it's embarrassingly not known enough in england and wales so i'm, I'm on a not quite a one-man mission but i do think it's really important people going to get to know more about it um so thank you very much indeed for your time i really really do appreciate you, you talking to me Thanks so much Alex.